This is How to Read. I'm Milan. And I'm Olivia, the producer of this episode. Today we're talking with Colin Wayne Leach, a social psychologist who studies protests, politics, and emotions. Images of protest have a visceral power to grab our attention. Colin Leach has been studying how we react to different kinds of protest images. For example, an image of many police holding down one protester and an image of many protesters facing off against a few police convey very different messages about who has the power. Both protesters and police have an agenda for how they want to be represented, and this is as old as photography itself. But online news and social media bombard us with more protest images than ever before. So it's more important than ever to understand their visceral power. Colin Wayne Leach, welcome. Thank you. So we are going to talk about images of protest. And um, so I guess the first question that I have is, what happens in someone's brain when they see an image of a protest? Um, I guess the way that I think about it is, um, obviously the brain is involved in our understanding of what we see, but um, I really try to describe it as a visceral experience, mm. an embodied experience. So that, that means, and when we're really engaged by issues or by images, then it mm. really is full body and brain, all of our systems are engaged and interacting. Mm. So maybe not to talk in terms of the brain primarily then, but like, what is that visceral reaction that happens when you see an image of a protest? Well, so we know that the, the first stage is really important. And even though it's obvious, it's really important not to take for granted that to actually be affected by something like an image of a protest you first have to pay attention to it. This is the first step in processing and understanding um, or interpreting something, reading something. You actually have to notice it. notice it, right. Like you could be like flicking through a newspaper or something and the image is there, but you don't notice it. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah, yeah. At that stage, are you even at that stage, are you already aware that it's a protest or is that the next thing that your mind has to do is kind of really figure out, like, maybe initially you're just noticing the sort of the shapes and the people, but, you know, at what point do you actually kind of mentally label it as a protest? Certainly. So in studies that we've done, we expose people to images of protests or images of police violence or use of force. Um, for one second okay and that is long enough to see some elemental aspects of the image and our visual systems and our cognitive systems are really good at noticing um certain things that are common in those kinds of images so so for example we're really quick at noticing bigger and smaller Uh, we notice age and race and um, sex and gender really quickly without really even attending to it. So there's certain elements of those visual images um, that we notice really, really quickly and we understand, but we may not be able to report to you. I see an image of a bigger person who's mm. white holding down a person who's black, who's a, who's a woman. Like you can't um, express it verbally or consciously, but like you've already figured it out in some sense. Yes. 
I mean, this is making me think about sort of like the different like types of images of protests that we often see, right? Like you, you mentioned the sort of large white police officer holding down a smaller person, like even just the bodies might not be bigger or smaller, but like if one person is standing up and the other person is on the ground, then they're gonna look smaller. But also I'm thinking about kind of the reverse where like you sometimes see these images of like huge crowds of people and then just like a small line of police. Yes. So is that also like big and small playing a role in how we react to that? Um, absolutely. And that's a very powerful kind of image. Um, so for example, that imagery, that image of the riotous crowd, this is a very mm. powerful image um, that many of us have in our minds as a dangerous uh, mm. circumstance. And right, because so protests aren't necessarily riots, but yeah. it's easy visually to kind of present one as the other or make it seem as though it's yeah, about to be a riot. So a group of angry faces, arms out or up, um, mm -hmm. yes, that, that is, can, can be construed as, as riotous, as violent. Um, the complicating thing there is in a lot of these images that are really interesting, they often juxtapose a larger group of protesters against a smaller group of police or National Guard. But of course, there's been a lot of attention to the impact of militarized police or of one tank or of police with uh, you know, automatic weapons, and then maybe our analysis of power or danger starts to shift depending on our perspective. Yeah, so I mean, what I'm getting from this is that like, there's a there can be a real agenda to how, what kinds of images you present of a protest, right? Like you can use that big and small um, as a way to catch people's attention, but like make a, group of people or a person that seems like vis visibly smaller seem like the victim or seem like the sort of, you know, the weaker one, even though, as you're saying, like, if you have like riot gear and weapons and a tank backing you up, like you're not actually weaker. Um, yeah. You're not less powerful. I mean, so I think you're getting into a really important issue here. And this is exactly what um, I'm interested in and, and what um, I think social psychology is good at. So, if you think about all of these events as un unfolding over time, they're all basically a negotiation or a back and forth of trying to interpret various people's power and their good intentions or their morality. And so for protesters, this is a delicate kind of dance because of course the point of protest is to complain, uh, to, to claim some sort of wrong and to be empowered. But being empowered is exactly what puts protesters at risk. Yeah. So that's why I think the visual iconography, the visual embodiment of empowerment these days, hands up, don't shoot, raise fists, uh, die-ins, these are all ways of trying to navigate this delicate space of claiming power by protesters, but not claiming so much that it puts them in danger in a way that they can't control. Yeah, I mean, one thing this is helping me to understand, I think, is like, you know, how the like the social and the psychological are interconnected, right? Like how one person reacts, how they perceive other people 
it's not just a matter of kind of like what's going on in their body, what's going on in their mind, but also, you know, these social categories that you've been, you know, mentioning, like race, like police, mm-hmm. like um, this isn't just something that is sort of um, inherent in the way that the minds work. There's also a, a real kind of like social component that's to do with sort of like biases and prejudices, right? Yeah, you know, and um, experienced protest organizers have an understanding of a lot of this and try to use it to organize protests. So, for example, who do you put in the front of the protest? Yeah, I mean, this is helping me to understand and experiences that I had this summer. Um, There's one protest that I went to, which was a march for Black trans lives, and they you know, their their policy that they announced to everyone was that the black trans people were at the front of the march. Mm-hmm. So I was like way at the back as someone who's neither black or trans. So it was only afterwards that I saw these images of like the front of the march um, and these people who have been so kind of like marginalized and, and ignored, but also abused, you know, all at the front gathered in a big group. And I think that was like a powerful image. Um, but not one that I saw when I was there in person. Right. So I guess all of this is is to kind of ask about like um, the role of these these images that circulate after a protest, you know, through social media, through the news. Um, how do those relate to like what happens actually like live at the time when the protest happens? I mean, you know, so that's complicated because all all involved parties have, let's call it, representational concerns. All involved parties want to present themselves in a particular way at a protest, right? And so now they're using news media and social media to try to curate how they're represented. And this is, gets very, very complicated. So, for example images of looting or breaking windows or what have you are very powerful and can represent a protest as mainly about that, irrespective of what percentage of the people actually engaged in it. And we also have to sort of acknowledge that, you know, at some level, social media in many of these cases, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey, that they're only getting the attention that they got because of video that documented um, behavior by the police that that many people, not all people, find objectionable. Because like, actually the iconography and the images of protests, that's really old. That goes back to the suffragettes, that's even before that. As, that's old as photography, which is old, well over 100 years old. But the iconography and images of police use of force or dominance or brutality, that's new. Yeah, so that's, I mean, because just talking about the longer history, seems like a really important thing to me because um you know we started by talking about the kind of the visceral impact that an image has on your body on your mind on your emotions and and if i'm understanding you correctly it's like we've had like centuries of images of like protests as being threatening um and only a much more recent history of like actual like documented like video and photography of police um, being violent and, and, you know, harming people. So like the power of that kind of visceral image has been very unevenly divided. 
Well, let, maybe let's just clarify a little bit in that, mm. right? So photography is what, 150 years old or something like that? And so, yes, for a long time, the turn of the century, the late 1800s, early 1900s, into the 20s and 30s, there was a very common representation in the media of protests as riots. So yeah. that, that is a continuous stream at some level, but I'm sure everyone can also uh, has these iconic images of protest or resistance um, that are photographs, that are still photographs that are really, really powerful. So many people had, you know, those iconic images from the civil rights movement, like a, a few black people sitting at a lunch counter um, yeah. or of Gandhi leading a march. So we, we have both images available to us, but it is true, and this is well documented, that the news media has mm. tended to represent large-scale protests as riotous and as dangerous. So I'm wondering if you were the photo editor of a newspaper or a news website, what would your policy be about the photos of protests that you showed? Yeah, what I've come to learn through talking to journalists is in fact that, you know, editors actually um, decide on headlines and photo editors decide on images. And so often the reporters or the people actually writing the article, reporting on the um, protests in this case, um, mm. have no influence on the headlines the that go with wow. the headline. And so there's often this, if you look at this you know, systematically, there's often a disjuncture between the headline, the headline image, and the text of the article. Mm-hmm. So now this is a downside to our media-saturated society is that we know, in fact, that many, many people never read articles from news media. They look at right. the headline I, and the images. didn't read the story, but I read the headline. And so I would actually love to um, speak to newspaper people and editors, get them to realize that, um, that attracting attention shouldn't be their only goal because the things that attract attention, like I talked about from the beginning, are the things that aren't necessarily conveying an accurate or proper narrative of what's happening. Um, yeah. And in fact, people may not read the image beyond the striking examples of somebody throwing a bottle or a Molotov cocktail or spitting mm. at a police officer. Yeah. So it sounds like, I mean, if, if you were in this role, like a photo editor, there are kind of choices that you would make that would be not about just always going for the most attention grabbing thing, but also it sounds like you would want to be the person also writing the headlines, like that those two things, which usually are separate, you would really want to be, you know, sending the same message, both the headline and the image. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you've given me a lot to think about, I think just in terms of like my own browsing online, use of social media, reading of headlines, just looking at images, like I think I need to go away and think long and hard about like how I do that in my own daily life. But um, but I'll do that in my own time. So <laughs> Colin Leach, thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for this episode. For links to books mentioned in our discussion, plus further reading, visit our website, howtoreadpodcast.com. You can also listen to a bonus clip in which Colin discusses how images of protest have been impacted by social media.
This episode was recorded remotely on August 28, 2020. To hear about our latest episodes and news, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at How to Read Now. This episode was produced by me, Milan Talunen, and by me, Olivia Branscombe, with editorial assistance from Colby King. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Special thanks to Columbia University for its support, and thank you for listening. <laughs>